0: Our scripture this morning, Galatians 513 to 24. For you were once called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk in the spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh.
1: You can be seated. Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Caleb. I'm the pastor of student ministries here, and it is a great joy to open God's word with you this morning. Before we do, though, uh, would you pray with me? Father, we come before you, and we uh, we have a... A simple, dangerous request that you would be among us this morning, that you would use your word to conform us and challenge us to be the people you've called us to be. Uh, Father, we, uh, I ask also for myself that you would give me clarity of thought, boldness of speech. I ask that you would be glorified in our time in your word this morning and that you and you alone would receive honor and glory. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus, amen. On July 4th, 1776, the world was turned upside down whenever the colonies declared their independence from Britain. And the even more surprising thing is that it actually happened. Somehow, a ragtag volunteer army in need of a shower somehow defeated a global superpower. Somehow, they emerged victorious from the quagmire, waving Betsy Ross's flag higher. Somehow, they did it. They were free. There's a question that still remained with that freedom, one that Lin-Manuel Miranda has King George ask the colonies in his musical Hamilton. What comes next? Uh, You've been freed, and do you know how hard it is to lead? You're on your own. That's awesome, wow. Do you have a clue what happens now? In other words, great job with the freedom, guys. What are you gonna do with it? What does it even mean? And that's the question we're seeking to answer this morning. This morning, we are uh, in a series titled Mind the Gap. We're exploring how we as a church can bridge where we are with where God is calling us to be. And if you've been with us the last few weeks, I hope that you, you've been able to, to grasp and are excited about the great declaration of independence that we have as Christians. As Galatians 5, 1 tells us, that it's for freedom that Christ has set us free. That in him we are, are loved and satisfied and valued. But if we don't grasp what comes next, if we don't understand what our freedom is for, well, then another gap open up, opens up in our lives It can pull us away from being the witnesses and the ambassadors that God is calling us to be. And so this morning, I want us to look at how we can bridge the freedom gap. We are interested in discovering how we are to use our freedom in an effort to pursue our calling. And to do that, we turn our attention to Galatians chapter 5. We're going to look at verses 13 through 24. And from our text, I want us to make three movements. I want us to look at the fine print of our freedom, uh, the false advertising of our freedom, uh, and finally, the formation of our freedom. Now, As we come to our text, it's important to understand that in the context, Paul is having a much larger conversation with the Galatian believers about how to use their freedom in Christ, because he is concerned that now that they're free, they might somehow throw back on a yoke of slavery. In order to prevent that from happening, he says, according to verse 16, that they need to walk by the Spirit. Now that is a common turn of phrase among Christians, but it's one that's often used, rarely explained. So, so what does it mean to walk by the Spirit? Because there's a lot of different ways that we walk throughout our life, isn't there? There's uh, walking by your dog, which uh, typically means that you're trying to get around the block as fast as possible without being dragged and pulled every which way by your dog. You're just trying to keep some control and get to your destination as fast as possible. Or, or there's, uh, there's walking uh, by your small child, which in my experience goes something like this. Your kids want to go to a park nearby and so you're walking along hand in hand when all of a sudden, boom, they just go boneless. They just pff, right there and they're just not moving. And so they expect you to carry or if necessary, drag them to the destination. Or, or there's, um, there's walking by your significant other, where, where you know, you're, just, you're always staring at each other, and you don't care where you go as long as you're together, which means you really don't go much of anywhere. <laughs> and and while, while these might typify our, our relationship with the Holy Spirit, the Apostle Paul is, is interested or has something else in mind when he says, walk by the Spirit. Have you, have you ever watched a small child that's like just beginning to take its first steps? They're not good at it. And so what a parent will, will often do is they'll come beside the child. They'll take them by the hands and help them to stand up and begin to take their first steps. The, the parent empowers them to move and to walk. But remember, the child is not good at this. And so like they would like fall off the stage or run into the lake if they could, giggling gleefully all the way. And so the parent not only empowers them to move, but guides and directs them as to where they should go. And that's what what walking by the Spirit looks like. When when we are walking by the Spirit, He empowers us. He guides and directs us in how we should live and be. And really, to walk by the Spirit, then, means that we are dependent on Him. We are living submitted to Him. And when we do that, things begin to show up in our lives. Things like uh, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. These are the fruit, the natural byproduct of walking by the Spirit, This is what he's doing in our lives as he leads us to use our freedom to its intended purpose, which Paul spells out for us in verses 13 and 14. He says, You were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. This is where walking by the Spirit leads us. It leads us to exercise our freedom so that we would love and serve one another. Paul says that this is what fulfills, what brings all of God's commands to their intended purpose when we love our neighbor as ourselves. And it is worth pausing for a second to ask ourselves how do we love ourselves? Well, we love ourselves by nurturing ourselves, by, by, by nourishing and cherishing ourselves. We, we look after our needs, and we are concerned with, with our flourishing. And Paul says the great news about our freedom is we can now do all of that for others. And this revelation kind of mirrors my parents experience with a a a bed and breakfast out at amish country so one time my parents received a phone call and and letting them know that they had won a free romantic evening at a a bed and breakfast and after confirming that this was not a scam uh, they booked their reservation and excitedly went out when the time came and when they got there they found an elderly amish couple waiting to have dinner with them waiting to play three hours of dominoes and then who promptly woke them up at 6 a.m. to make sure that they got breakfast in time. Now, uh, the food wasn't bad. The room wasn't dirty. And the couple wasn't mean. But there was a big problem with that experience. It wasn't what they thought they were getting. It's not what they signed up for. And that's kind of what's happening with this word freedom. See, see, both we and Paul are using the same word, but our understandings are very different from each other. Because when we think of freedom, we think of freedom from tyranny, freedom from obligation, freedom from rules, freedom from. But when we look at the fine print of the freedom Paul is talking about here, he just means the ability to submit to God. And to serve others. It kind of feels like Paul is, is uh, using freedom as clickbait for us. That what we have in our text is a, a serious case of false advertising because the freedom we're interested in is autonomy, the ability to pursue whatever our hearts desire without judgment or consequence. Because let's face it, we're Americans, we prize individualism. Uh, as, as Ron Swanson uh, so aptly puts it in Parks and Rec, the whole point of this country is that if someone wants to eat garbage, balloon up to 600 pounds, and die of a heart attack at 43, you can. You are free to do so. Freedom, for us, means the unrestricted ability to pursue the things that I believe will give me a good, flourishing life. And Paul has a term for that. Uh, he refers to it in verse 16 as gratifying the desires of the flesh. Now, when we hear that phrase, desires of the flesh, we instantly think that he's talking about something sexual. And he can be talking about sexual desire, but it really shouldn't be pigeonholed there. Uh, the, the word in question is epithumos, which is a hard word to translate, but at its root, the force of it is that it's an inordinate desire. It's an over-desire desire For something. It's the thing that we most long for and want. It's the thing or things that we believe that if we have it, we will have a full, flourishing life. And so to gratify the desires of the flesh simply means that we are pursuing the desires of our hearts until we have it, which really does kind of sound like how we understand freedom. Now, now you might be thinking, hang on a second, Caleb, it sounds like you're saying that our American freedom is a bad thing, and it's not what I'm saying at all. I'm simply asking, is the way that we define and exercise our freedom to pursue our own flourishing, is that more consistent with walking by the Spirit or gratifying the desires of the flesh? And perhaps Paul can help us answer that question by fleshing out what gratifying the desires of the flesh looks like. Um, He does so in verses 19 through 21. He says, Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Now, can we all agree that there's, like, nothing on this list that is remotely desirable? Like, no one wants to be labeled a drunk or sexually immoral or, um, or someone who causes dissension, which is why, my guess is, that as I read through that vice list, you were using it kind of like uh, a scorecard. You're asking yourself, how many of these am I guilty of? But that's not the point of this list. Paul's not trying to provide us a grading scale to determine how much we are gratifying the desires of the flesh because he isn't providing us a complete list. That's why he ends with a catch-all statement and things like these. This list is not exhaustive, but it's also not random. Do you notice that Paul intentionally selected vices that have a, a social or interpersonal component to them? When these acts are done, they are wrongs committed against other people. See, there was this, this long-held belief, tied all the way back to Aristotle, among the Greek philosophers, that, that the vices that Paul has on this list are the markers of a deviant society. And they concluded that the reason that society was broken and malformed was because of people who were seeking their own private gain— at the expense of others. And Paul is taking that logic and he's applying it to the Christian community. Paul is saying that when we devote ourselves to gratifying the desires of the flesh, when we focus on us and our needs first and only, that's when communities are damaged. That's when relationships begin to crumble. Think about the times that you have not loved your neighbor as yourself. The times that you snapped at your kids. You cut down your spouse. The times you turned a blind eye from those who were being ostracized or who were in need. My hunch is, and I'm basing this hunch on my own personal experience, my hunch is that at the core of that action, we are gratifying the desires of the flesh. That we are, are bent on achieving a flourishing life for ourselves. That our, our self-centeredness causes us to bite and devour those who are around us, those who might curtail our pursuit of happiness. So, what's Paul telling us here? That using our freedom to pursue our own self-interest it is a is a misuse of Christ given freedom. It's inconsistent with what God calls us to be and to do. And this is this is. This is hard for us to wrap our minds around because we have a a third category in our minds. We don't see pursuits of of our freedom as gratifying the desires of the flesh. But, But listen again to how Paul talks about these two things. Verses 16 and 17. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. How many options are there? There are two. You either submit and are led by the Spirit, or you submit and are led by the desires of the flesh. There is no third option. At no point are we able to do the things we want to do. Autonomy is just servitude falsely advertised. Because if you are absorbed in pursuing the good life for yourself— you aren't free to love and serve others. You are taking orders from something just like if you were walking by the Spirit. And while that that seems wrong to us, that's actually how freedom works. Uh, uh, The philosopher Charles Taylor explains that that to have any kind of livable society, some choices have to be restricted, some authorities have to be respected, and some individual responsibility has to be taken. And so think, think about it like this. Is a train restricted when it's on the tracks or when it's off of the tracks? The answer, of course, is yes. It's restricted in both instances. It is severely limited when it's on the tracks, but it's able to move and go as it was intended. It's also limited when it's off the tracks, but we call that expression of freedom a train wreck because of the damage and devastation it causes. And so the real question, Uh, When it comes to freedom is not, what will let me do whatever I want? That's not an option. (laughs) Because you are always following. You are always marching to something's orders. The question is, what set of limitations creates an environment for me to flourish? What set of restrictions will form true freedom? And, And this is a question that we ask ourselves all the time in certain pockets of our lives. Like, we ask this question almost every time we set foot in a doctor's office. Um, There was a a guy I was in class class with a few weeks ago who was telling us that he used to really love sweets and fatty foods. And he walked in to see his cardiologist and the cardiologist uh, cardiologist informed him that if he didn't change what he was eating, there was no way he was going to live to see his kids graduate high school. Now, he he could have said, I am free, I'm going to do whatever I want, I'm going to eat those fatty foods. He gladly gave them up. Why? because he's willing to exchange the lesser freedom, take on this limitation, so that he might enjoy greater freedom, a longer life with his family. Uh, Let let me give you another example. It's it's jokingly said that when you get married, you should raise a glass to freedom because it's something you will never see again. And in a lot of ways, that is true. Uh, when, When you get married, your options for romantic partners goes from a lot to one. And you are no longer free to just buy whatever you want or go out with your friends whenever the mood strikes you. You are severely limited. And yet we all happily rush to get married because in a marital relationship, you, you surrender lesser freedoms for greater ones. And, and so what we need to ask ourselves is holistically for our lives, what system of limitations results in the greatest freedom for us? What, what is the most conducive environment for our flourishing? And the way that we would determine that is to look at what we gain from it. And in Romans chapter 6, Paul sets out the same two options he does in Galatians 5, but he does so in even starker terms. Uh, he says that we are either enslaved or in service to something. It's either God or to sin. And in Romans chapter 6, I'm starting in verse 20, he says that, that this is what you gain whenever you're following sin. He says that when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. See, so when we're enslaved to sin, when we're gratifying the desires of the flesh, we're, we're freed from righteousness. And, and righteousness is, is one of those fancy Christian terms that, that just means that we are in right relationship with God and with others, which means that we are adhering to, to his commands, to what he said. And, and with sin you are free to, to ignore all of that. You're free from any and all of those restrictions. You don't have to concern yourself with what God thinks. Because remember, sin is the belief that we are wiser, we know better, and we care about ourselves and our circumstances more than God does. Sin is really our attempt to guarantee that, that we have a full, flourishing life. Because every time we sin, we are saying to God, I don't actually believe that your way is the way to go. That'll lead me to a, a, a full life. I'm going to do it my way. And so with sin, we gain the ability to say no to God and his tracks for our life. But that gain comes with a severe limitation. He goes on in verse 21. But what was the fruit? What, but what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. The final result, when, when when the wages of our self-centeredness are paid out, it's, it's, it's death. Because sin is not just thinking that we know better than God, it's, it's committing cosmic treason against the king. And, and so the other option seems far better for us, verse 22. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life being enslaved to God, walking by the Spirit, it results in our sanctification, which is another big Christian word that just means the process of becoming who God intended you to be. And and the final product of that is eternal life, both quantity and quality. It's the far better option. We, We gain far more from that option, but we just can't see it that way. Our self-centeredness is so profound that we, we can't even see how it limits us and leads us away from the life we desire. We think that perhaps God is the selfish one. He's trying to keep us from enjoying life and we must go out and grab what we want from it. And that's where Jesus comes in. Jesus comes so that we might have the abundant, flourishing life that we're all longing for. And he paid the ultimate cost to make sure that we would have it. That's why Paul concludes uh, in verse 23 that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We, we can't bring about the abundant life that we want. No amount of self-centered pursuit can provide that for you. It just pays out death. It, it's only something that we receive as a gift from Jesus. Jesus is the one who provides the flourishing that we're all looking for. And that's why Paul, in our text, in verse 24, says that we're able to happily endure the limits of this freedom. We can crucify the, the desires of the flesh with all of its passions and longings because we belong to Jesus. Because we have seen and experienced his love and his provision and care, we, we don't need to focus on our flourishing. It, it frees us to live as we've been called to, to love others as ourselves. And, and so, so here's, here's the point. The, the freedom gap is really a conditional gap. Uh, it, it's an indicator that the other gaps that we've been looking at in this series aren't as bridged as we thought. The pursuit of our own self-interest is an indicator that the gospel still needs to be needed into our hearts and baked more into our lives. Because the freedom gap can only be bridged by further embracing the gospel. The more that we believe and embrace that God provides the abundant life that we're seeking, the more that we're able to use our freedom to love others as ourselves. And when we grasp this, when we realize that our freedom is, is much greater than we originally thought, then, then we begin to see things as, as C.S. Lewis describes it. He says, imagine yourself as a living house, that God comes and he begins to rebuild it. And at first, you can understand what he's doing. You know, he's getting the drains right. He's, he's stopping up leaks in the roof and so on. And you knew that those jobs needed to be done. And, and so you're not surprised. But then presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? Well, the the explanation is that he's building quite a different house from the one you thought of. He's throwing out a new wing here. He's putting on an extra floor there. He's running up towers. He's making courtyards. See, you thought that you were being made into a decent little cottage. But he is building a palace he intends to come and live in it himself. See, see brothers and sisters, our, our, God's desire for us is not just to be recipients. It's to be witnesses. We are not tiny little cottages. We are to be palaces that display his glory and greatness to the world. And Jesus says that the way we do this, that, that all people will know that we are his disciples if we love, by our love for one another. See, history has its eyes on us. The world is watching to see if we are his witnesses, if we will, will, will declare his greatness to them It's evidenced by our love for one another. And so brothers and sisters, may we be a church that does not throw away our shot. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we come before you and we thank you, that is for freedom, that Christ set us free, that, that in you we find the environment, the, the path, the tracks that lead to our flourishing, the life that we all long to experience. Father, we confess, I confess, that very frequently we try to take that freedom and, and use it to our own selfish ends, to advance ourselves and what we think is best for us. Father, we confess this morning that we struggle to trust you, to entrust ourselves to you, to believe that you are good and that your love is great. Would you forgive us of that, Father? Would you help us to see and behold your great love for us? Would you take your gospel and work it into every part of our lives, every fiber of our beings, until it, it seeps out, it, it floods over our relationships to others. God, would you help us by the power of your Holy Spirit to use our freedom in a way that brings glory and honor to you. May we be those who love our neighbor as ourselves. Even now, Father, as we sing your your praises in this closing song, would you orient our hearts to you? Would you um, would you impress upon us your love and provision? May we entrust ourselves to you, so we may be the people that you're calling us to be. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.